Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning, Ritman Grace Brethren Church. How are you folks doing this morning? It's good to be here with you. My name's Clark, and I'm the pastor here. And if I've never met you, love to meet you after service. So stick around. Love to chat with you a little bit. And those of you that we have met, love to just uh, catch up with you and see what God has been doing in and through you lately. Well, we are in a, a sermon series called DNA, where we are looking at eight core values, uh, eight biblical values that we want our church to be uh, defined by. And we want to be known for these eight biblical core values. And we said this when we began this uh, series, that we're not creating these, we're not simply just making these up. Uh, this is what God desires His church and His bride uh, to be known for. Last week, if you were here with us, you might remember we talked about how we want to be uh, known for people of prayer. We said we pray both privately and we pray corporately. We believe prayer ought to be a first response rather than a last resort. Uh, today we're going to look at the next value, which is, if you haven't uh, figured it out by now, worship. We're going to be looking at worship. So what do we say in our core values about worship? We say this, that we believe that every facet of the church's worship aims to glorify God and edify His people. We believe that Sunday shapes our everyday. How we gather teaches us how to live when we scatter. So let me explain what I'm talking about when we say that. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to go with me to Psalm 95. Uh, Psalm 95 is where we're mainly going to be camping out here this morning. Uh, Sam White read it earlier in our scripture reading. I want to invite you to turn there with me. I just want to read it again. I won't put it up on the screen because I want to walk through it with you, make some thoughts on it. But Psalm 95, uh, let me just read it and then we'll talk about it. So Psalm 95, breaking in at verse 1, says this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only, you will hear his voice. Uh, late author David Foster Wallace once wrote, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship, and an outstanding reason to worship God and not something else is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money, you will always feel that you do not have enough. If you worship beauty, you are always going to feel ugly. If you worship power, you're always going to feel weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect, 
being seen as smart, you're always going to feel stupid and like a fraud and on the verge of being found out. The passage that we just read and that we're going to be looking at this morning together in Psalm 95 is a call to worship the living God. That's who we sing about. That's who we preach about and teach about in our Sunday school and small groups. And some of you might be sitting here thinking or maybe even watching online and wondering, well, why do we worship this God? Well, in verse 3, we're told, For the Lord is the great God. And the psalmist goes on to explain what he means by that. He provides us a few examples. If we look at verse 6, he says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So I want to give you some reasons why we are to worship this God. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Uh, Three reasons. The first reason... We worship God because He is our Maker. You and I exist because God exists, not the other way around. God made you. God made me. In fact, David says in Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So the point is, you are God's handiwork. You're His beautiful creation. You're not just an idea in the artist's mind. You're a tangible, living, breathing, walking work of art. And not just you, but everything that is around you as well. All of creation testifies to God's craftsmanship, His ingeniousness, His artistry. Notice in verse 4, Psalm 95 again, In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. We all belong to him. We're his creation. We're his possession, and you ought to worship him. But not only is God our maker, we are told that he is also our savior. We are to worship God because he is our maker, but also because he is our Savior. Notice in verse 1, the psalmist says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And salvation means more than just forgiveness of our sins. Salvation means reconciliation. It means enemies becoming friends. Salvation means restoration. It means broken things made whole again. It means hurting things being healed and the lost being found. We're called to worship God because God is, as the psalmist mentions, the rock of our salvation. Rock meaning the basis. Our salvation is something that's settled, right? For those of us who have come to Jesus through faith and repentance, our salvation is settled. It was a plan that was hatched in the mind of God the Father, and it was a plan that was executed and accomplished by His Son, Jesus Christ. And then that mission was accomplished by Jesus, and then it's been applied to us personally by God the Spirit. And it's a work of the triune God. Salvation is not something that we made up. It's something that He conceived. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we achieve. Christianity is not something that we achieve. Christianity is something that we receive. It's something that God won for us. As famously said by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace 
that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. God does it, and He gives it to us, and we receive it with empty hands of faith. So just to review, we worship God because He is our Maker. Worship God because He is your Savior. But then thirdly, worship God because He is your Good Shepherd. Look at verse 7 with me. It says this, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if only you would hear His voice. Uh, so po- poetically, because we're reading Hebrew poetry here in the psalm, we're the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, God has sent a good shepherd to save lost sheep. And Jesus says, that's who I am. I am the good shepherd. In fact, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in the verse right before that, he says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life. Life abundant. The good life. Life to the fullest. Life the way that it was meant to be lived. The kind of life that you were made, made for. The kind of life that you were hopefully saved for. And this Jesus says... I can give you. Why? Because I'm the good shepherd. Jesus continues in verses 14 and 15 in John 10, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And on on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus took the punishment that all of our sinful wrongdoing All of our sinful wandering is afflicted on ourselves and on the world around us. Jesus experienced hell so that we don't have to. Jesus, the good shepherd, came to seek and save the lost sheep. He came to reconcile and restore. Which is why we can say with King David in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths. For his name's sake, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 95 calls us to worship this God, our Maker, our Savior, our Good Shepherd. And why should we worship him? Well, simply put, because he is worth it. In fact, that's what the word worship means, our old uh, English word. The, our English word is worship, but it comes from the old English word worth-ship. We just drop the th, but it's the word worth-ship, and that means this: when we worship, we're declaring something's worth. We're declaring something's value. We worship God because He is worth our devotion. He's worth our allegiance. He's worth our time and our attention. He's worth. Our love, in the words of David Foster Wallace, he is the one object of our worship that will not suck you dry, but will actually give 
you life, life to the fullest. But Psalm 95 doesn't just call us to worship God in a vague, self-determined way. In other words, worship isn't just drinking your favorite coffee and walking through the woods. It's not listening to a sermon while watching the sunrise over a lake. And Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking those things. I'd love to do that. But those things don't actually count as worship, at least not in the sense that we're talking about this morning in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 calls us to corporate worship. Worship with God's people, not just as an individual, but as a corporate act. So let me explain what I'm talking about. Let's look at verse 1 again. The psalmist says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Notice that word, come there. That word, come, is an invitation, is what that is. It's a call. It's beckoning you to into something. But not just the individual. It's saying, notice, let us. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us come together. Let us go together and declare the worth and value of this Maker and Savior and Good Shepherd. The call to worship is its like a dinner bell that's ringing. And it's saying, come away from your work, come away from your play. It's calling us into a house where we're meant to feast as friends, feast on the good news about God, feast in His presence to have your faith fed. It's a call to let us give thanks, to let us give praise and why is it so important for us to gather as a church every week for worship? We were made and we were saved to be a part of a certain kind of community like this. I try to experience the Christian life outside of community is a lot like a fish trying to find life outside of the fishbowl. It just doesn't work very well. You were made and saved for this kind of environment. A life in which you are in re right relationship with God and other people and with the world around you, a community that's called church. But just a couple of reasons I want to give you this morning as to why we need to follow Jesus with others, specifically corporate worship, worshiping God with other people. Corporate worship is your best defense against the lies of the devil. In other words, you could say it this way, there are strength in numbers. There are strength in numbers. The reality is this, there is a spiritual enemy called the devil. We did a whole series last year on the world, the flesh, and the devil. I encourage you to check that out if you missed it. Um, you might think that the devil is this old-fashioned idea. And then we grow up and we graduate from such things. But Jesus would beg to differ with you if you subscribe to that line of thinking that, you know, I don't think the devil's just an old-fashioned, made-up thing. Jesus would beg to differ. Jesus very much believed that there's a devil and that he's real. In fact, he's your biggest enemy. Not only is the devil real, but he is actively seeking to destroy you. And this is the reason that the world looks the way that it does. Full of en enmity, full of strife. And so we need to have a grip on what we're up against and how the devil operates. The devil's primary objective is to ruin lives in this world. But he doesn't do that through this sort of paranormal activity in haunted houses and Ouija boards. Like that's not his main strategy, believe it or not. The main way the devil works is through lies. The truth is reality, 
right? If truth is reality the way the world really is, then lies are unreality. They go against the grain. When we go against the grain, we get splinters. Most of the devil's lies that we hear in our own lives are actually spin-offs or remixes of the very first lie that he whispered in the garden. Most of the devil's lies that we hear are from that. The big lie of the garden is that God is not good and that he's not loving, that you can't trust him. God doesn't want what's best for you. In fact, he's withholding good things from you. The lie is that you'd be better off without him. The devil says that if you want to live a happy life, then you need to chart your own course. In other words, write your own rules. Be the author of your own script. You do you, is what we hear. Be true to yourself. Speak your own truth. Do whatever makes you feel good. Never sacrifice your happiness. Follow your heart. Right? Eat this fruit. Do it. You'll be happy. Trust me. You'll be free. A little bit different from the freedom we sang about a little bit ago. These lies we hear are all just spin-offs or remixes from the garden. The devil overwhelms us with lies, but he also manipulates us by isolating us. Because when we're isolated, we're a lot easier to fool. And one of his letters, the Apostle Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We've all watched the nature documentaries, right? We know how lions hunt. They come in from the side and they try to isolate the weak one. And they get them separated from the pack. Because once they're isolated, it's dinner time, right? You separate a sheep or a wildebeest or whatever from the flock, lunchtime. That's how the devil operates. You're a whole lot easier prey when we can isolate you from community, when he can get you by yourself. I love the way that John Mark Comer says it. He says this, as a pastor... I can tell you countless stories of people who have walked into sin or even walked away from God, and it always starts with drifting away from community and other solid followers of Jesus. And as somebody who's been in ministry for almost a decade now, I would add an amen to that. I've seen the exact same thing happen over and over and over. The greatest indication as to whether or not you'll be following Jesus in five years from now is, are you going to church this week? That's our greatest indication or clue as to your future life with God. Are you in community? Think about it this way. Uh, there's these animals called uh, dolls, right? Not Mark and Julie doll, but uh, dolls. It's actually an animal. I'll actually show you a picture of it. It looks a lot like a fox. There's these sort of dog-like creatures um, they're the arch enemy of the tiger, actually. They live in India, and there's these uh, pack animals, almost half dog, half weasel. They're a really interesting animal. And they're about the size of a red fox, and they live in these packs of 100. Isolated from the pack, the doll is basically just tiger food. 
They're small. They're no match for the great and mighty tiger. And like I said, they're basically the size of a fox. But when they're part of a pack, this creature cannot only withstand a tiger attack. Packs of dolls are known to chase after and even kill tigers, which is amazing, I think. It's just nature. I say all that for this reason, though. Isolated, we're dead meat. But with others, you can withstand tiger attacks. You can withstand the lion that is crouching at your doorstep and wants to devour you. Psalm 95 is a call to corporate worship because there is strength in numbers. It's not just that God is worth it. There's strength in numbers. The lies of the devil have a lot less of a foothold in your life when you're not trying to do life on your own, like a lonely doll or a lonely sheep. You're much better when you're part of a flock and when you're under the care of the Good Shepherd. And that applies to me as well. Right? Jesus is the great shepherd. The second reason we need to practice corporate worship is because it's the only way for us to break the spell that we're under, this false way of thinking. All of us are prey to the lie, that lie that we talked about earlier, that God is not good, that God cannot be trusted. The lie that says, I belong to myself, I'm my own. And life is ultimately about me and whatever makes me happy. That's the lie that's gotten deep into our bloodstream and deep into our bones. And we're living out that lie very easily. It's the default setting of every human heart. And it's the script that you and I are living out of. And it's a bad script because it's not true. So let me put it to you this way. Uh, every day you wake up, essentially, uh, you live your life as if it's a movie about you. We think to ourselves, okay, I'm the star of the show. I'm the hero. I'm the protagonist in this movie. And we think to ourselves, right, all of you are either supporting actors or actresses who are here to help me to get what I want in my movie. Or worse, you're just the background. You're extras or stagehands. But basically, it's saying, life is all about me. It's a movie about me. It's about fulfilling my dreams. So we do this all the time. It's the, it's the default setting of the human heart. But this is the script that we've been given. But it doesn't have to be this way. There's another script. And in this script, you're not the hero. God is the hero. But you do have a role to play in the show. You do have a role in this film, and it's not demeaning and it's not dehumanizing. When we worship God, we are leaving the me-centered existence, and we are stepping into a God-centered world, a God-centered reality. A, and a good worship service has this narrative arch to it. We begin our time this morning with a song, our call to worship. God precedes us. He was there before we stepped into the space, and He's calling us because He wants to be with us. And He has something to say. He is, as I said, ringing the dinner bell, so to say, singing, come and eat. And He serves us His Word, speaking to us words of life and love. And we listen, and we receive, and we enjoy, and we're reminded that He is our Maker. He is our Savior. He is our Good Shepherd. 
that he really does have the whole world in his hands as we sing in Sunday school. We confess our sins in ways that we have fallen short of his call to love. And we are reminded that we are forgiven. And more than forgiven, we are adopted into his family. And we have a seat at this table because of the Lord Jesus. And we're reminded that even though we're not the stars of the show, we do have a part to play in the unfolding drama of God's mission and the unfolding dream of his redemption. Not the hero, but supporting actors and actresses. This is the true story to which our stories are a part of. And we get to practice it. We get to rehearse it week after week. At least we're invited to. I love what G.K. Chesterton once said. He said, how much greater would this world be if you could become smaller in it? How much greater would your life be if you could become smaller in it? I love that idea because when we're the star of the show, we loom large in our life, and everything feels pretty small and dingy. Life isn't that great. When we are in the center, life feels crushing. It feels like the weight of the world is on our shoulders, and it's toppling over because we can't handle that. We can't handle the stress of it. We can't handle the weight of it because we honestly just were not made to. Our shoulders aren't big enough for that. The reason our solar system, think about it this way, the reason that our solar system works is because at the center of it is something really big called the sun. But if you were to put planet Earth in the place of the sun, something lesser in the greater place, everything would spiral out of control because we don't have that kind of gravitational pull. We're not that big. And then we think, Everything needs to revolve around me. That's a lot like Jupiter crashing into Mars and Saturn. It's just not going to work. But we oftentimes do that. We think life is all about me. Everything revolves around me, and it's just a mess, and it doesn't work. So the answer is that we are called into a better way, a way in which we're not at the center, but we're actually at the side, and that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. Jamie Smith, a Christian writer and professor at Calvin University, says this, Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counterformation to those rival stories we are often immersed in. Cultural practices orienting us to rival versions of the good life. We are restored as we are restoried. We are restored as we are restoried. I love that. When we refuse to participate in the church or we try to reduce worship to a sermon that we can listen to our, on our own time, we are still living out of that me-centered story and script, aren't we? We need to step out of that and step into something else. We need to answer this call to corporate worship because this is the only way to really break that spell to enter into something that reorients our life and gets that story, that narrative arc into our bones where we step out of the center and into the side. And it takes practice. We're not just going to get it in one Sunday. We need to rehearse it. We need to practice it because that's what we do. What we do does something to us. There's strength in numbers. There's a new and better story for us to live into. 
something that is bigger than ourselves, and how much greater would our lives be if we became smaller in it? For all of these reasons and then some, because Jesus is worth it, because Jesus loves you, we're called into worship. So may we be a church here at Written in Grace where we value worship, a church where worship is part of our DNA, a church where every facet of our worship aims to glorify God and edify His people, a church where Sunday shapes our every day because we're part of God's story, a church where the way we gather teaches us how to live when we scatter. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just praise you. We praise you and we worship you. We come to you this morning and we're just so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for corporate worship. Lord, let us shout aloud to you the rock of our salvation as we read today. Because you did it, Jesus. You saved us. Those who have come to know you through both faith and repentance, Sam talked about a little bit ago. Lord, forgive us for being so me-centered, for being so preoccupied with ourselves, for thinking that everything should revolve around us. Lord, we thank you that you are a great God. May we worship you every day of our lives, the great King above all gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our maker, our savior, our good shepherd. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.